It's a similar time in history. Uh, and you'll see some of the very same emotions and some of the very same pleas coming out of the mouth of the psalmist that we saw coming from Habakkuk on Sunday morning. And you'll see the very same hope that we saw on Sunday morning. His hope is in remembering who his God is. And so we'll see that this morning as we work through Psalm 74. It's sometimes weeks like this, I'm amazed at how the Lord lines up the passage that we're in with Sunday morning with the psalm and how that just keeps us in the same vein of thought throughout the week. And so uh, we'll be encouraged to that. I'm going to read it and then we'll pray and then we'll jump in. Psalm 74. Well, God... Why have you cast us off forever? Why does your anger smoke against the sheep of your pasture? Remember your congregation, which you have purchased of old, the tribe of your inheritance, which you have redeemed, this Mount Zion where you have dwelt. Lift up your feet to the perpetual desolations. The enemy has damaged everything in the sanctuary. Your enemies roar in the midst of your meeting place. They set up their banners for signs. They seem like men who lift up axes among the thick trees. And now they break down its carved work all at once with axes and hammers. They've set fire to your sanctuary. They've defiled the dwelling place of your name to the ground. They said in their hearts, let us destroy them altogether. They've burned up all the meeting places of God in the land. We do not see there are signs. There is no longer any prophet, nor is there any among us who knows how long. Oh God, how long will the, adversi- will, will the adversary reproach? Will the enemy blaspheme your name forever? Why do you withdraw your hand, even your right hand? Take it out of your bosom and destroy them. For God is my king from of old, working salvation in the midst of the earth. You divided the sea by your strength. You broke the heads of the sea serpents in the waters. He broke the heads of Leviathan in pieces and gave him as food to the people inhabiting the wilderness. You broke open the fountain in the flood. You dried up mighty rivers. The day is yours. The night also is yours. You've prepared the light and the sun. You've set all the borders of the earth. You have made summer and winter. Remember this, that the enemy has reproached, O Lord. And that a foolish people has blasphemed your name. Well, do not deliver the life of your turtle doves to the wild beast. Do not forget the life of your poor forever. Have respect to the covenant. For the dark places of the earth are full of the haunts of cruelty. Oh, do not let the oppressed return ashamed. Let the poor and needy praise your name. Arise, O God. Plead your own cause. Remember how the foolish man reproaches you daily. Do not forget the voice of your enemies. The tumult of those who rise up against you increases continually. Let's open with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, this evening we do rejoice in your wondrous love. Your wondrous love that will not let us go. And even as we've seen in Habakkuk on Sunday, as we come now to Psalm 74, so often our hearts echo the cries of these prophets and the psalmist. 
So often we don't understand what is going on around us. We can't see what you are doing. We cannot fathom how what is happening could be good. And yet even in the midst of all this chaos, we rest in the wondrous love of our God who will not let us go. We remember who you are. Give us faith to trust you even in the darkest night. Give us hope to keep believing even in the deepest valley. For you are God wherever we find ourselves. We pray that you'd be honored as we look at this psalm this evening, that we'd be encouraged. We pray all this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Psalm 74, it's a community lament. It's a community of God's people crying out to God. The context seems to be following the destruction of the temple in 586 B.C. In fact, you see that in verses uh, 3 through, I think it's 11, as he's crying out, your, your dwelling place has been torn apart. It's been burned up. And we'll see that as we work our way through here. So it seems to fit the context of 586 as the Babylonians have come in. 586 is... Uh, they finally come in. The first, you'll remember from Habakkuk, the first time that they carried um, captives off into captivity was in 605 B.C. Now we find ourselves in 586. That's when they come. Again, this time they uh, tear down the temple, carry off more captives into captivity. And so it's sometime after that. We don't know how soon it is following 586, but it's still fresh enough in the psalmist's mind. And that's the circumstances. In fact, that's what you see in verses 1 to 11, the psalmist's circumstances. You'll notice even in his cry in these first few verses, he cries to the Lord. It's not... It's not a logical cry. So often we don't process things logically. Right? When we, when we react in emotion, we're just reacting. And you'll notice that he, he starts off in verse 1, Oh God, why have you cast us off forever? But then a verse later he's saying, Remember us. You know, come back to us. You just said he's cast you off forever. And then you're saying, But remember us. You know, it, doesn't, it doesn't line up. But that's how he feels. He feels his perspective is, is, is this, that God has cast us off forever. He knows better. And we'll see that by the end of the psalm. But this is how he feels. God, we are your people and you've cast us off. What are you doing? Why does your anger smoke against the sheep of your pasture? It's almost a, a funny picture that that puts in our minds. I, I think of a cartoon where, where someone gets angry and their face turns red and smoke comes out their ears. Your anger, why does your anger smoke against the sheep of your pasture? Your own people. So the very same questions that Habakkuk asks, just some probably 20, 30 years earlier. Verse 2, remember your congregation which you have purchased of old. The tribe of your inheritance. 
Your people who are uniquely, specially yours. Your inheritance, your most cherished possession. We are your people. Remember us. The people which you have redeemed. This Mount Zion where you have dwelt. This was your mountain, God. We are your people. And your temple on your mountain sits in ruins and your people have been carried off into captivity. Why is your anger poured out on your own people? Why have you cast us off? What is going on? We know the history. We know what's going on. We know that Israel has broken the covenant. This is God's righteous judgment. Honestly, at this point, the psalmist probably knows that. If he is at all faithful, he's been, he's, he's probably heard Jeremiah. He at least probably knows of Habakkuk. He's heard their cries against Jerusalem. He, 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 he probably knows why this is happening, and yet it still rises up in his mind, God, why? We don't deserve this. We're that way too, aren't we? I don't deserve this, God. Yeah, you do. You deserve much worse. In fact, if you were to fight for your right before God, you would be in hell right now. It goes on, verse 3, lift up your feet to the perpetual desolations. Again, the idea of perpetual, total, for all time. Again, it's, it's almost illogical. Remember us, God, save us. In the midst of this desolation that will go on for all time, it's, it's an exaggeration. Come and see, lift up your feet. Come running to see what has happened to your people, to your mountain. The enemy has damaged everything. He goes on now in verses uh, 3, 4, 5, 6 uh, through uh, verse 11 to explain this total desolation. We've damaged everything in the sanctuary. Your enemies roar in the midst of your meeting place. They set up their banners for signs. That's interesting. Note that there in verse 4. He says the enemy has come in. They've torn down the sanctuary on this mountain that is God's mountain and among these people that are God's people. And God's temple that they've torn down, they've set up their signs, their banners. And yet, in a few verses, he'll say, we don't see signs. We don't see your signs, God. We see their signs. They've set up their signs. They've come in. They've conquered. They are victorious. We see their signs. We don't see your signs. We'll get there in verse 9. But they've set up their banners for signs. They seem like men who lift up axes among thick trees. They break down its carved work all at once with axes and hammers. They set fire to your sanctuary. They've defiled the dwelling place of your name to the ground. They said in their hearts, let us destroy them all together. And so they've burned up all the meeting places of God in the land. They didn't just stop in Jerusalem. We know that there was one temple. There's one sanctuary. But all throughout the land, apparently there was uh, some probably general, non-sacrificial religious sites where God's people would gather. Maybe the idea of what later would become uh, synagogues. Wherever God's people gather, any, anywhere that there's any 
religious significance in Israel, they've burned up all of those and gotten rid of it. They have completely tried to wipe this land of God's presence. And in verse 9, we do not see our signs. And there is no longer any prophet, nor is there any among us who knows how long. Oh God, how long will the adversary reproach? Will the enemy blaspheme your name forever? It's total desperation. He's overcome. We don't see any signs. There's no prophet to lead us. And yet, just because they don't see does not mean that God is not at work. In fact, we know the historical context, do we not? If this is 586, if the temple has been uh, destroyed, when was it that Daniel was carried off into captivity? Mentioned it earlier, 605. If Daniel was carried off at 605, at around 15 years of age, then now in 586, he's approximately... 35 to 40, somewhere in there. Maybe 45. We don't know exactly. He's somewhere between 35 to 40, probably. And what do we know? We've been going through the book of Daniel. What does God do? He's raising Daniel up. He's moved Daniel up through the ranks in Babylon. He sits highly. He's got authority and power. And so even as this psalmist sits in Jerusalem, probably covered in ashes, mourning, saying, God, we don't see any evidence of what you're doing. We know from the historical record that hundreds of miles away in Babylon, God is at work. God has risen someone up into power. God knows exactly what he's doing. It might not seem like getting to this psalmist sitting in the ashes of the temple. And yet God has someone in the highest office in Babylon. In fact, not only is there Daniel, there's another faithful prophet who answers this psalmist's very question. Jeremiah, at this point, is likely um, passed off the scenes somewhat. It he does not seem like he's an active prophet at this point. At least this psalmist does not know of him. There is no longer any prophet. And yet, what do we know from Daniel that Jeremiah prophesied? Exactly how long this would happen. And what's the cry of this psalmist? There is not any among us who knows how long. The problem is that the psalmist is looking for signs and wonders and God's already spoken. He's spoken through Jeremiah. He didn't need a sign. He simply needed to look to what God has already said. He's already spoken through his prophets. There might not be any prophet at this time prophesying, but God's already spoken through Jeremiah. God's at work in Babylon through Daniel and you have no idea what he is doing.
You can almost feel the psalmist as he's pouring out his heart, growing in agitation. He comes to verse 11. Why do you withdraw your hand, even your right hand? Take it out of your bosom and destroy them. The idea is take it out of your pocket. Take it out of the folds of your garment. It's a bold statement to say. That's something you say to your teenage son when he's being lazy. Get your hands out of your pocket. Get to work. Take your hand out of your pocket, God, and get to work. Destroy them. And yet at this point in verse 11, there's a drastic turn as you come to verse 12. It it moves from the psalmist's circumstances of verses 1 to 11, what he sees... And then in verse 12, he starts focusing on his God. It's a stark change. A stark change in focus happens. He's saying, God, get to work. Where are you? Come. And then he says, for God is my king of old. Working salvation in the midst of the earth. My God is an eternal God. He's a sovereign king of the universe. He is working in all the earth. It almost is like there's a different song. This can't be the same psalmist. And yet, like Habakkuk, as we saw this last Sunday, the psalmist turns his focus from what he doesn't understand to what he knows to be true about his God. I don't know where you are, God. I don't understand. I don't see any sign that you are at work. But this I know, that you are my king from of old, working salvation in the midst of the earth. This I know, that you divided the sea by your strength, that you broke the heads of the sea serpents and the waters. He goes on to focus on on God's power as creator in verse 13 and then into 16 and 17. Verse 14 to 15, his power over creation. You broke the heads of Leviathan in pieces. These great sea serpents, these great sea beasts are nothing before my God. He created them. He rules over them. You broke open the fountain and the flood. You dried up mighty rivers. Might be a reference to either the crossing of the Jordan or back to the Exodus. But the big idea is that God, my God, has power over creation. He's the God who created. He's the God who sustains The day is yours. The night is yours. You've prepared the light um, and the sun. You've set all the borders of the earth. You've made summer and winter. This is my God. He has done this. And so then you come to verse 18. As the psalmist has turned his attention from his his cry, this, this, this raw emotional response at first, He's turned his focus to to who his God is. And now, verse 18 to 23, he prays again. He cries out to the Lord. And yet, this one is much more tempered. It's much more focused. It's much more um, informed by who God is. Remember this, that the enemy has reproached us, O Lord, and that a foolish people has blasphemed your name. Don't forget Oh, do not not deliver the life of your turtle dove, your people, 
your tender people to the wild beasts. Do not forget the life of the poor forever. It's a contrast with verse 1 and 3 where he uses language of, oh, he just throws his hands up. God, do you turned against us forever. You cast us off forever. We're in this perpetual state of desolation. And yet here in verse 19, do not forget the life of your poor forever. Have respect to the covenant, Lord. Remember your promises. For the dark places of the earth are full of the haunts of cruelty. Oh, do not let the oppressed return ashamed. Let the poor and needy praise your name. Arise, O God, and plead your own case. Notice yet the psalmist, his focus has shifted from despair for God's people, what's going to happen to us, and yet now, as he's focused on the Lord, his his focus now, his concern is not for God's people, his concern is now for God's glory. Plead your own cause, God. Remember how the foolish man reproached you daily. Do not forget the voice of your enemies. The tumult of those who rise up against you increase continually. Remember your promises to your people and remember your justice on your enemy. You see a transition through this psalm. I think what you see here as at the end is that when you remember who God is, you you, you recognize that that your circumstances don't mean that God has changed or lost control. It simply means that God is doing something that you don't fully comprehend. And you don't have to understand what God is doing. It's an invitation to submit and to trust. The psalmist's circumstances do not change throughout this psalm. He's still sitting in the ashes of the temple on Mount Zion. In verse 23, he's in the exact same place. His circumstances have not changed. And yet his opening complaint has turned into a prayer as he's focused on who his God is. The psalmist's hope is that though the sanctuary of the Lord lies in ruins, the promises of the Lord still stand. And they will stand forever. Because God is a faithful God. I think there's application for us in this psalm. We're obviously not sitting in Jerusalem. Surrounded by a temple that's been overrun, people who've been carried off into captivity. But we do face things in life that we don't understand. We're often overwhelmed by by our surroundings, things that we see on the news, or, or maybe even things that are personally happening in your life. And yet, the same truth that applies to the psalmist sitting in the ashes of the temple, crying out to God applies to us. Regardless of what else may be falling down around you, God is still God. And his promises still stand. Not because of who you are, but because of who he is. So take your focus off of your circumstances and remember who your God is. We've seen that twice this week now. That, that was the whole point of, of what we saw 
a Sunday morning in Habakkuk. And that's the whole point of this psalm. Take your focus off of your circumstances and put it on your faithful God. You don't have to understand what he's doing here. Just know who he is. That's your hope. That's your, your, your rest. It's in who God is. Not in understanding what's going on around you. Your God does not change. He is all-powerful. He is good. Rest in who he is, even when everything else around you is falling down. With that in mind, let's transition to some prayer requests this evening. And even as we remember these requests, remember who God is. Think of Caleb Wilson, a student that we're praying for who goes to our church, whose dad passed away suddenly last weekend. We don't understand why. We don't have to understand why. We know who God is. We know who God is. Rest in who he is. What other prayer requests do we have this evening? Anything else? Continue to pray for James and his ministry. Um, we rejoice in the good news that he's continuing to lead people to the Lord. He's continuing to faithfully serve uh, in the field that the Lord has called him to. I was talking to Betty just tonight how neat it is to be able to support someone like James, you know, to pray for him. And, and the ministry that he has in a place that probably no one else in this room could go to or would, frankly, be willing to go to. And yet he's there, reaching people, faithfully serving uh, for the gospel, for Christ. So praise the Lord for that. Continue to pray for James and his ministry and the unique opportunities the Lord has given him. Anything else? Hey, Jim.